This is episode 33 with John Stanberg. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My guest today, John Stenberg, is one of the most experienced venture capitalists in the Pacific Northwest. He's also the owner of Hands of God Wines. Uh, John has worked with venture-backed companies for over 20 years. He's invested in more than 300 ventures, and he has three funds raised, totaling $200 million under his belt. In this episode, I ask John about his childhood, his professional journey, his wine business, how he works, and more. John, thank you so much for joining me today uh, here in Seattle. Such a pleasure. Yes, uh, we're right now in uh, the Pan Pacific Hotel. Um, uh, and I know before we get started, I just wanted to ask you this. How, how you ended up deciding that you wanted to be a resident at a hotel? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not exactly like Howard Hughes. Um, there are condos above the hotel. Got it. But I have a young daughter who kind of loves having the doorman open the door for her when she's here. So. Oh, okay. But you don't. But that, that's, that doesn't mean that you have people coming into your place and doing the beds and all that stuff that you get well, at the hotel. We, we could, but we opted out for that. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. <laughs> but actually, it's it's super fun living in the heart of South Lake Union because I'm not sure there's a place in the country where more change is happening at such a rapid rate. So we we love walking this neighborhood and yeah. seeing the changes and and growing with it. Mm, okay. So to start, you were born in Omaha, Nebraska. Yes, I was. <laughs> what was your childhood like uh, over there? It was great. Uh, it was pretty Mayberry RFD. It was pretty heartland Midwest growing up. You know, it was the days where literally we didn't lock our front door. We left the keys in the car and the car open and never thought twice about it. Kids took off in the morning and came back for dinner and... It was it was a great childhood. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't help myself to wonder, you know, when I see the Omaha, Nebraska, I think of Warren Buffett, and you're also an investor. Is there anything going on in Omaha, Nebraska? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think people, uh, first of all, Omaha is more sophisticated than people might know. Mm -hmm. And Warren was and is a hero of mine um, mm -hmm. and has been a guiding light uh, for, for many reasons. And... Um, I think having left Omaha, I have a, I still invest in Omaha. I still go back to the Nebraska football games. Mm -hmm. I still have family in Omaha. Omaha's home. Hmm. And then uh, when gr growing up, what would you say you wanted to be when you were a kid? Do you have any recollection of that? Well, I was, uh, I was, a. Uh, a competitive tennis player. So, hmm. you know, for a while I thought that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as I got older and saw the other kids get stronger and faster and bigger, that, that changed. But I, I always had an entrepreneurial streak. I was very lucky. I grew up, although my father died when I was young, he was a real entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. He was um, someone who developed apartments in Omaha. Not mm -hmm. a lot of them, not fancy, but they were a different type of apartment than had been developed before. Some of my summer jobs were picking the weeds and cleaning up trash around there in the sweltering heat of Omaha. But I think we, and he, we talked about business around the dinner table. And mm -hmm. so 
it's not surprising. And if you look at uh, my oldest brother, he, mm-hmm. I think, went on and channeled my father, and he's a large real estate developer and very entrepreneurial. And so I think the other thing that happened, which I, I rarely talk about, is mm-hmm. when I was 12 years old, my mother put myself and a friend when we were 12 on a train from Omaha to New York by ourselves. No one would ever do that today, but she thought we should see New York and we wanted to go visit museums and we had someone meet us in Chicago at one of the stops and make sure we were fine and off to New York we went. So this notion of of feeling trusted and feeling like I can do things that others can't, I think started early. Well, that's nice. So he just sent you on your own trip, basically. Yeah, making sure people were at the stops. Yeah. But but yeah, but we were on our own. I mean, you just wouldn't do that today. No, no, it's crazy. Yeah, I think I have something that my my dad uh, is an entrepreneur too. He used to put me in a plane from one city to the other. And I would remember the air attendant would sit next to me. And I don't know if people still do that. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it's, it's interesting. I think if you allow kids give kids the confidence early that, yeah, you can do these things. It has an impact on us later in life, or it certainly did for me. Yeah. I try and do that with my own daughter. Well, that's nice. And then I think I, at some point I want to have a whole episode on parenting these days with, because <laughs> I, I feel it's so hard to do what my parents did. And I think uh, in, in your case, even when your parents did. 100%. Uh, because of all the stuff going on these days. Um but uh, you, uh, as far as your career goes, you went to Stanford University and you did economics and then you got a master's degree later in Asian studies. How did you decide to pursue those degrees? <laughs> those two are quite different in how I decided to pursue them. I thought I wanted to be pre-med when I got to Stanford, but realized mm-hmm. I wasn't smart enough. Given I quickly looked around the room and saw what the competition was and realized I would never leave the library if I was going to be pre-med. And part of my belief in going to Stanford was the education was both inside and outside the classroom. So I thought I'd focus on a major that allowed me a little more life balance, mm. which economics did. Um, and and so really it came down to, I was interested in economics, but I wasn't passionately interested in economics. It was just something that allowed me to kind of take advantage of Stanford in a very full way. Was economics uh, a path that it was easier to get through the classes for you? Is that w- It was. I mean, the pre-med and engineering at Stanford are more yeah. rigorous and more, uh, they take up more time. And and quite frankly, I, I was super impressed with the people I went to school with and I saw that they were going to have an easier time doing it. And so mm. I just made that decision. Um, but when it came to my master's in a- East Asian Studies... That was a passion, and I. Part of it is, I'll be honest. I wanted to stay in school because I loved being there. Mm-hmm. But part of it was, I've always had a lust for travel, a lust mm-hmm. for learning about the world, and that was a way that I thought I could do it um, and still learn and get a master's. And also, I had this interest, a strong interest, not only in the culture of China and the history of China, mm-hmm. but also in Buddhism and spirituality Hmm. of Asia. And so this was the perfect way to combine all those things. I think as I've looked at my career and things I've jumped into, I don't know if I consciously or unconsciously ask the question, how do I take my varied interests and combine them? Hmm. 
So I asked two questions. How do I take my varied interests and combine them? And how do I take the things I think I'm pretty good at and combine them? Mm -hmm. Because if you can do that, if you can take those two things Mm -hmm. um, or create those two things, um, because those jobs or those paths are not, there's not, there's not a site that you go to and say, well, fill in the six things you're good at and fill in the six things you're passionate about and mm-hmm. here's the job, right? Sometimes you just have to create them and I think I've also done that in my life. Yeah. I think when, uh, especially now, uh, we better economic times for the the millennial generation, sure. right? There is less friction so that, that most of the self-actualization starts coming up. Right. How did you, uh, in your case, go about... Uh, fulfilling that multi-passionate being that you are. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Well, I've always, I, the, the, the words that came up in my mind when you asked that question was Steve Jobs saying, stay hungry, stay foolish. Mm-hmm. And I think what that means is be curious. Mm-hmm. I remember I was this weird kid who would go to the library and rummage, I mean, for hours, through every entrepreneurial magazine, whether it was Forbes, Fortune, Inc., mm-hmm. Entrepreneur, and literally try and see as many different stories about entrepreneurs and successful people and business types and think about, could I do that? Would I be interested in that? And I, I literally would tear articles out and keep them, and I had files on this. And I, and I didn't, that was sort of me doing what podcasts do today, hmm. right? But it was my way of trying to, Look for inspiration. Mm-hmm. I think if I was to give one piece of advice, and maybe you're not even asking, but if I was to give one piece of advice, is figure out inspiration. Mm. Ne- stay hungry, stay foolish. Never stop being inspired. Mm. Whether it's podcasts or newspaper articles or meeting with people. I, I had a habit when I moved to Seattle in the early, early years that I was here. I've been here now over 30 years. I would call someone out of the blue. I would call an entrepreneur I thought was interesting and successful and say, you don't know me? Could I grab a cup of coffee with you? Mm. People do that more and more these days and access to people is different these days, easier, so people get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But back then, people were like, wow, no one's ever done this to me before. Sure, Sure. let's get together. Yeah, And there were some really interesting people that I got together with back then, including you know, people like Howard Schultz. Mm-hmm. And people that own the Space Needle and the Nordstroms and so forth. And mm-hmm. again, that was me trying to figure out who these people were and what made them tick. And and every time I was inspired. Mm. And I tell you, people ask me what was Stanford like. And again, mm-hmm. I'm going to say the same thing. It's I was with people that inspired me, who pushed me, who, you know, sometimes you don't want to compare yourself to others. But sometimes if you can use that in a positive way. You do it because for me, it was like, gosh, I can do better. I mm-hmm. can do these things. I yep. want to try that. And so for me, life is about staying curious, but it's also trying to constantly being inspired. Hmm. So it's in, in one way, the, the idea of always looking for inspiration works, uh, I'm thinking of the function, is a sort of reinforcement mechanism to keep you in a state where you keep trying and never let yourself down, right? Because you're receiving that. Well, I, I, for me, it's a, it feels good to be inspired. Mm-hmm. It feels like life is, has possibility. It feels like it's, it, it shoots electricity through me. Like what, There's so much to do before we go. Mm-hmm. And 
when I see other people who, who embrace that as well in whatever way, and by the way, it doesn't have to just be in business. Inspiration mm-hmm. comes in many forms. Um, I, it, it, it lights something in me. And, mm-hmm. that, and, and so to the day I'm no longer here, I will always be looking for inspiration. And mm-hmm. it comes in so many different forms. But people, for me, is a big one. Do you have any advice for those who say, you know, I'm always uh, looking for inspiration, but sometimes I feel like I'm using it to escape work, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, is there a limit to that? Well, <laughs> yeah, there's always a limit to relying on one thing, right? Mm. There, you can't, <laughs> there is no one answer. Everyone, that's, that's always a problem I have with, and I, I don't need to name names, yes. but, but whether it's in the category of life hacking or yes. real estate hacking or uh-huh. this or that, it's just do this. Uh-huh. I don't buy into that, but there's pieces of it that are mm. absolutely true. And so at the end of the day, you're still who you are. Mm-hmm. Like you're not Tony Robbins. You're not Howard Schultz. You're not this yeah. person. You're yourself. Mm-hmm. So take some of the nuggets that you hear that work for you, knowing who you are, what you care about, what you're good at. Mm-hmm. And apply it to you that way. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about customizing the experience, right? You're very attracted to entrepreneurship. And I, I read that you started two companies while you were at Stanford. Yeah. Could you tell me really quick a little bit about that? How did that go? Yeah, they were, they were sort of looking back silly businesses, but, uh-huh. but they were fun. And, and uh, I did it with people I really enjoyed. One was a chocolate chip cookie delivery business. All right. Based on how many nights that I think at one point, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but why not? I ordered 32 straight nights of Domino's pizza. And, and I'm like, well, I don't just want Domino's pizza. I need something else unhealthy. And I know other people do too. Uh, by, by the way, I don't eat many cookies or pizza today, just to yeah. set the record. But, yeah. but, but I knew that, uh, but I wasn't the only one up late after studying or mm-hmm. what have you who were hungry. And so, you know, Instacart, man. I was way ahead. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and then I had a t-shirt company uh-huh. uh, that we sold t-shirts at um, at the football games and White Plaza. And, and and both those experiences taught me about a bunch of things about inventory and employees and trying to do uh, projections and cash and accounting. And even though they weren't big businesses, it was fun to do them. Mm-hmm. And I learned something. Well, and it's a beautiful way of uh, implementing what you're learning, right? Like you go to class and you have your, now you have a purpose. Okay, what what can what can I pull from that to? That's right. To the business. That's right. I think. By the way, I just want to, that word purpose is, is so important. You, you know, you're never bored. You, you never think your job sucks. You're never unhappy. It seems like if you know why, where you're headed. If you're if you know mm. why you're doing what you're doing. If you've got some goal in mind. Mm-hmm. It's when you're in the river and you're just in the tide pool and you're just sitting there going, what is this about? That to me is, for me, right? Everyone's different. But for me, that's when I'm unhappiest. Mm. So every, let's name it, three to six months, I just review my goals. I review where I'm at. I review where I'm going. And I don't hit it every time, but it's a, it's a great reminder. Hmm. That's part of my own inspiration. Part of the stuff... Yes, I need the external, but I also need the internal. Hmm. Yeah, otherwise it's like you have eyes, but you can't see. That's right. Well said. Uh, now, here between 1988 and 1995, you were a marketing director at Microsoft. Billy Proby, this is kind of like the beginning of you entering the corporate world. Yeah. 
and you spend there seven years, which it seems more like the pattern back then. Now they say it's one to three years. One to three years. <laughs> they're, they're, Twenty-two <laughs> months, right? That's the, the number we hear for Amazon. <laughs> and then you join a start, uh, uh, and then after that you join a startup as a VP of sales and marketing, and that's you jumping from corporate to the startup world. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you approach deciding? Hey, I'm going to go corporate. Well, it was being yeah. An it's, a great, it's a great question. I, I to be honest with you, it was because of a good friend from. Stanford, mm-hmm. who had moved here, was working at Microsoft, and he really encouraged me. He said, you know, I know this probably isn't what you want to do. I know you've never been to Seattle. Look, we'll fly you up. You at least get to see the city. Come come interview and see what you think. Now, there's, a, I think, something important to note that Microsoft back then is way different than now. It wasn't as big. Correct? Oh, my gosh. Oh, it, it was to just over 2,000 people. It wasn't well known. Okay. Um, I didn't know anything about Seattle. And the reason, and, and to your point, as an entrepreneur, I even thought about leaving and starting my own company. That was sort of before search funds were around. Um, I thought I might do real estate because I had done and been in my family a little bit. Yeah. But the notion of working for a corporate entity was certainly not. And I truly, even after I took the job, thought, what's the worst, right? And I do ask that question generally, what's the worst? I... I I'm there for a year. I see a new city. I've learned something. I'll leave. You know, mm-hmm. I, there's other things. When you're an entrepreneur, when you believe you can create your future, then you're never stuck. Mm-hmm. Right? I can, I have options. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's, I always have that view. No matter what the situation I'm in, if it's not working out, if, it, if somehow we're not creating something great together, I don't have to be there. Mm. Right. So, but I did join. And the reason I joined, true true story, I have this theory I always want to be surrounded by people a lot smarter than me and inspire me. We've mm-hmm. talked about that. The 10 interviews I had at Microsoft were the most interesting, engaging, tough. <laughs> and they were they were just intellectual puzzles that at the end of it I thought that was super interesting. Because what they used to do, and they probably still do it, is they, you go in and you meet with one of the product marketing managers, and they would say, here's what I'm working on right now. What would you do? And it wasn't some hypothetical wire manhole covers round kind of thing back then, um, but more about real life. They're thinking about it. There's a chance that what comes out of the interview, they actually go and change what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt, even in the interviews, that I was already part of it. Hmm. So that was super interesting to me. What What's interesting to me on that aspect is that there is a huge push cultural-wise to you know start your own thing since the beginning. Like go to college, you have the, the big stories of the college dropouts. Yet then I see articles that say that the most successful, let's say, startup owners are usually in their mid-40s and their former Microsoft, former Amazon uh, uh, employees. So in one way... If you look at the, the stats, the majority of successful entrepreneurs have that corporate, but yet the culture is pushing for, sure. don't go there because well, you're going to be a stock. Yeah, well, right? first of all, I don't believe in any of those stories, right? Uh-huh. Because everybody's different. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm sure there are some some trends. and I mean, it would make sense the most successful entrepreneurs are those that have grown up and matured and gotten right. beat up a little bit. And, mm-hmm. but, but of course, there's exceptions to that. Of course. Right. But I think um, 
I knew mm-hmm. that I wanted to be I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then coming out of business school, I kind of knew that I wanted to be a venture capitalist. Because again, mm. venture capital always combined my interest and my inspiration. The thing we talked about earlier, right? And we can talk about that later, but it, it actually really is the perfect job for me in some sense. But so I come up to Seattle and, and I have the job with Microsoft and I go see someone who was in venture capital. And there weren't very many people back then. And I say, actually, I took this job with Microsoft, but I'm pretty sure in a year I'm going to leave and I want to do venture. Interesting. And he said to me, it's really interesting. I need you to do something for five years. I need you to do, I don't care what it is, hmm. but I want you to know what it's like to fire, to hire, to be accountable to decisions. Mm. And the second piece of advice he gave me, and I love that advice, and I don't know that it has to be five years, but it's some amount of time, so you go through some cycles. Yeah, no, I think it's... But, yeah. the, but the second piece of advice he said to me uh-huh. was, learn some skill, mm-hmm. something deeper than others, that when you present yourself, you say, I'm a marketing person, I'm a salesperson, I'm a developer, I can do this one thing really well. So yes, have the broad time, experience time, but also have something. And what he actually said to me was, and don't be afraid of sales. Hmm. People poo-poo sales. Yeah. People think sales isn't a real skill. It's real. And you can, if you can, because you're always selling. Correct. Right. So if that's the thing you decide on, it's a great thing to decide on. In fact, if you go back, and it's not so long ago, one of the greatest stepping stones to the next career step was being a salesperson at IBM. That sounded painful to me. I wasn't going to wear that jacket and that shirt and that Mm -hmm. tie, but I understood it. It was a methodology. It was Mm -hmm. being around good people. It was systems. Yes. And so I guess, you know, I thought I went into the job with that. I had a goal. It's what we just talked about. I knew what my goal was. My goal was to get experience, get the cycle, but also learn a skill, in this case, marketing. You know, what I love about that is that it, for you, Microsoft was not a job, was a continuation of your education journey right. to become an entrepreneur. That's right. So that's why you could see Microsoft for what it was for you. That's exactly what it was for me. And nothing distracts you. Right. That's, 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 uh, that's great. That's but great it's insight. one of the reasons also, it's one of the reasons I would work 75 hours a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love, it's great. The kids coming out today, they're like, we work 40 hours a week and four-day work weeks and yeah. they're feeding us. And mm-hmm. that's great, but I wouldn't trade my experience for anything. Mm-hmm. Then uh, how do you make a pivot, right? You, you, yeah. you knew you wanted to become an entrepreneur and then you weren't sure of the timeline, but seven years ahead, yeah. you, you started kind of starting moving to the startup world. And yeah, when I, would you say you really went on your own? Well, I knew at some point Microsoft would be too big for me. Of course. Uh, just I know who I am and yeah. what I'm good at and what I enjoy. And I can remember the particular meeting when I the light bulb went off and I said, it's time to go. And so... Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that moment, if you can recall? Sure, I can recall it perfectly. It was an Excel product review meeting and I was in channel marketing and when I joined Microsoft, literally everybody knew everybody. Uh-huh. You walk into a room and you go yes. around the room and you'd say hello and uh-huh. how are you? And I walked into this meeting and there were 14 people and I didn't know 11 of them. And I thought to myself, wow, 
okay, this has become a big company. Huh. And the meetings were becoming more political and long-winded. And it was as if people had to say things just to be heard and not mm-hmm. to get things done. My perspective. Of course. Yeah. Right. But, but it wasn't what I wanted anymore. There's a feeling of disconnection. There was a feeling of disconnection. And also, I wasn't getting my, my vision, my goals. My, it wasn't being met anymore at that moment. Hmm. And, and I, you know, but I had also said to myself, I wasn't going to be here forever. And, and I wanted to do venture and I wanted to do deals and I wanted to work in tech and I wanted to work with entrepreneurs. So I, it wasn't hard for me to figure out what I wanted to do next because I'd already been thinking about it for years. Mm-hmm. And so I left and I, I did go to a startup actually across the street. I looked at from my condo. I looked down on it. was, if you can imagine, wow, almost 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 25 years ago now, it was a virtual reality startup. Hmm. Crazy. Uh, yeah, it it was a headset, an immersive headset mm-hmm. way before its time. Uh-huh. Um, just interesting how the world comes around and it's probably another 10 years before we really have virtual reality. But, but anyway, we were doing it back then, and I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, but I had never worked in a real startup. Was that your way to bring the systems from Microsoft to a, back to a small shop, high-touch yeah, operation? Right, yeah, and you know, as Microsoft got bigger, our roles became, became more and more defined. I mm. like the part where I'm the janitor. I like the part where we're talking sales at one point and then marketing, and then we got to talk to the, the product guys. And we got, I like the part of playing a bunch of roles. And in mm-hmm. an early stage startup, you get to do that. Got it. Right? And so that's what I was looking for. And, and I figured I needed that one little piece, last piece. If I'm going to be a good venture capitalist, mm-hmm. I needed to have both a fast-growing company experience and some of that corporate, but also what's it mean to be in a startup? And not hmm. if, I'm, if I'm talking to entrepreneurs and I'm asking them to take my money, I want to be able to say, I, I know if I want to mentor and coach. Of course, yeah. I have to be able to speak from some experience too. Yeah. So that's, that's what that enabled me to do. Yeah, like mentor people through wisdom, not knowledge. Right. right? Well, and you hope you do both. Hmm, okay. Yeah. And, and then, can you tell me a little bit more about what was your first inventor investment as a venture capitalist? And and before we go there, is a were you were you investing with your own funds, or were you more of the, the guy who organized the funds from other people? Yeah. Which yeah. which one of those? So I did a brief stint at a company in Seattle uh, where we helped people companies specifically raise money. We were more the agents. Oh, okay. But but that was an important step because it got me into deal flow and seeing and seeing yeah. what people reacted to and what the early stage business plans look like. Uh-huh. And I did that for a year and so there I was an agent, but I did it was very um it wasn't satisfying. It was like playing a consultant. It didn't have real stakes in the game. So what I started doing is um putting myself out there to find companies that I would personally invest in and that I would take to people I knew. And so I did a series of those and, and a lot back to Microsoft people um, and people I knew. Um, and I think that enabled me to feel comfortable based on people saying, yes, this looks good. Yes, I'll invest in this. That made me feel maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. And finally, several people said to me, why don't you just do this in a fund? Stop bothering us. We, we now know 
you're going to bring us good deals and interesting deals and the kinds of deals and the kind of analysis you do, why don't you do a fund and we'll give you some money to, to spread out over 15 or 20 different companies. When you say, when you, why don't you do a fund, does that mean people giving you their money for you to become the guy who tells them what to do and then you get a commission out of that? Is that No, so, so I was taking and finding one-off deals, individual okay. deals. Yeah. And I said, here, we're raising makeup numbers, a million dollars. Would you like to put some money in? Yes, I'll put $100,000 in this one or 25 mm -hmm. or wh whatever the number was. Yeah. I did that half a dozen times and finally people said, do a fund where we'll give you will commit to a larger number knowing that you're going to put it in a variety of deals. So there's diversification for them. I'm not going and selling them or pitching them on each individual deal. It's a fund that then says, let's pretend I, I raise a $10 million fund and I'm going to do 10 deals. I'm going to put a million dollars in each. I report on what we did. They believe enough in the fund manager, me in this case, but as you know, there are many out there. Uh, to, to make the good decisions over over the life. So it was my first opportunity to do venture capital and be a fund manager. Hmm. And then kind of backtracking, yeah. you said that the, the place where you got the experience of uh, knowing how to invest was through a company? That it was an agency? It, it was an investment bank. Investment so there's, bank. Lots of, there's a lot of agents out there, brokers, uh -huh. um, placement Uh, folks that will help companies find money for their deals. Hmm. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, that was a job. Really. It, it was a job. Okay. It was a job, but it was working with early stage companies who needed to raise money. Exactly the type of companies that venture capitalists invest in. Um, just I didn't have a fund at that point, nor had I really done it until that point. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an intro to the exactly. It finished what I knew I needed to become a venture capitalist. Yeah. No, you definitely. Your vision is as clear as, as it gets. And <laughs> now one part of the, your journey that I want to clarify is moving from Microsoft to the startup with the headset to now kind of getting out of the, the marketing and sales world because I believe you were helping the startup with marketing and sales right. still. Right. Now you're moving into an investment bank. These, the, the, those transitions toward your goal meant salary uh, cuts. Oh, good question. Uh, yeah, so they did. So, uh, so you're willing to significantly have salary cuts? Yes. As pursuing in fact, the, the agent, the the role in helping find money was basically a commission role. Hmm. So unless we raise money, there wasn't going to be a salary. Mm -hmm. So you know that you know eat what you kill is what they say. <laughs> okay. And so, but I knew I wanted that for some period to know that piece, right? And I knew that, again, that wasn't going to be that long, a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I was okay with that. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I think salary, uh, people forget that if you're in your late 20s or early 30s, everyone's different. You know, mm -hmm. family situations are Correct. different, right? Correct. Needs, risk profile. But I still say, Where you can take the long game, mm -hmm. take the long game, and I knew that I wanted to work in in where there was equity, mm -hmm. right? Because equity is a very powerful thing on many mm -hmm. levels, and I think people understand it way more today than they ever have, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but I knew back then that was important to me. Mm -hmm. 
But I think w one thing I want to highlight in your story, and correct me if I'm wrong, is during your transition, obviously, you never cre created a lifestyle that you, no. you depended on your check. Like, you were living way with, below your means. Yeah, in fact. And that why, that's why it, it didn't really matter, and you didn't, it didn't have such an emotional impact on you Th to have those correct. That's checks. correct. That's 100% correct. I mean, just as a look-back example, uh, you asked me earlier, like, what was one of your first investments? Uh-huh. What, in the fund, one of my first investments was a company called Evite, which mm -hmm. you might know about because yes. it became synonymous with electronic invitations. And even today, yes. while there's others, it still has a prominent place. Mm -hmm. To show that company that I wanted to be an, the, one of the first investors, I agreed to buy a Volkswagen Bug, this mm -hmm. is over 20 years ago now, and wrap it in polka dots and words that say Evite on it. I still drive that car. I could certainly afford a different car, mm -hmm. but that car reminds me of where I've come from mm -hmm. and what it takes to be successful, even mm -hmm. though Evite as an outcome was never great. But my commitment to the company and also not living above my means. I don't, I don't, I don't need a Tesla right now. Mm -hmm. Tesla would be fun. My daughter wants me to get a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and then so it it looks like through through your career and through uh, getting people to start trusting you with their money to to invest, you started building your own capital to correct. invest yourself. That's and, correct. Okay, and then and then uh, one thing is, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I also read that you are no longer investing on other companies. You're just investing on yourself. Is that is that right? Well, so it, that's mostly right. Okay. I'm mostly an angel, what you call an angel investor, uh -huh. and not a fund, a general partner in a fund. So mm -hmm. that is that is correct. Because I enjoy doing a variety of things at any one time, I still will find some companies and do what's called an angel list syndicate from time to time. Mm -hmm. Angel list is an interesting platform for people to invest in startups. I've done a few of those. Mm -hmm. And then... Since we're talking about what I'm doing presently, I'm also helping a super interesting uh, venture fund that I'm helping raise some money for and consulting to and advising and investing in um, called Rocketship that has basically created one of the most interesting data platforms for deciding on which companies to invest in around the world. And I think data is such an interesting cha game changer for all industries that why hasn't it been more applied to venture and investing? Mm. And so I, I said I would never get involved in funds again. I was at the age I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And I think funds have become a little bit commoditized, but this changes the game in such an interesting way. And, you know, we haven't talked about what the future is, but I will say I am, we're at the precipice of an absolute game-changing, world-changing, revolutionary technology explosion, both yeah. good and bad. Mm -hmm. we, we can talk about that another time. But, mm -hmm. but if you look at the years that I've been doing investing in venture, it's been serial steps. Mm -hmm. It's been mainframe to personal computer to networking to internet. And it was one after the next and the next caused that. And, the, and now I would say there's 10 things about to blow up that are tidal waves of, of life-changing technology. Mm -hmm. So the next 10 years are going to be absolutely fascinating. 
I can't wait. I want to be involved. And um, and for anybody who's young, younger listening to this, this is an amazing time to to throw yourself into the ring and and get involved. Now, as uh, this is a great transition to you know, if there is any listeners working on joining the the this trend and creating an impact, you said that one of your approaches, or I read is that you don't invest in companies, you invest in people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from that, uh, could you really tell me what are the, the, the things that you looked in uh, in someone that you're willing to invest? Sure. And and to be clear, this is always the question that people ask. Are you investing uh-huh. in the company, in the market, mm-hmm. in the people? And it's to be honest, it's, it's all of it. You can't, you got to have them all. Of course. Right? But people for me do come first. And mm-hmm. um, I was thinking back back in the day when I first started, I it was very much, I feel like the world, it was, when I started, the world was very wide open. Mm-hmm. Okay. It became less wide open. In other words, there were so many white, we call them white spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Areas where in technology could impact it. And I think there's less white spaces today, but more technology that can impact it. Mm-hmm. So before, fewer technologies, bigger white space. Today, more technologies, less white space, but still profound impacts, right? In in either of those cases, y- you know, it's like you, you gave me an example earlier of someone who had Instagram before Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, ideas, I hear them all the time, right? And mm-hmm. we could go through so many categories of search engines before Google and mm-hmm. We can give lots of examples of things before the thing, mm-hmm. right? Well, some of it's timing, headsets before headsets, virtuality, right? Mm-hmm. Some of it's timing. Some of it is luck. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget the role of luck in all of this. And some of it is is the people just wouldn't give up. They persevered. They wouldn't. They just had to make it happen, right? Yeah. I think back to that Evite investment and the guy, it was a team, but the guy in particular I worked with and invested in, today runs a publicly traded company, runs Etsy. Mm-hmm. And while Evi didn't end up being of great financial reward, I was right on the guy, mm-hmm. right? And, and so for me, you ask, what is it, what people, what's it come down to? Integrity, mm-hmm. that's a big one. Because okay. I've been in some deals where, you know, when, when, the, when the colors got gray, Mm-hmm. Uh, people did things that weren't uh, in the best interest of everyone mm-hmm. um, or in the best interest of themselves or mm-hmm. didn't show courage. So courage is another one. Mm-hmm. Some people call that tenacity. Some people call that just the ability to grind it out, mm-hmm. right? But I also look for people who have a reason to be successful, mm-hmm. right? Because... Uh, at the end of the day, none of this stuff goes as you planned. So you have to be willing to, to look ahead. It's what we talked about, right? It's not, if you're stuck in that tide pool, if you're stuck in that middle of that river without a vision of why you have to get down, mm-hmm. why you have to move forward, why you have to make this work, it's not probably going to work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back to the last thing, which is a salesman, saleswoman doesn't matter, right? But it, someone who, because you, you're selling to get good people in, you're selling to raise money, you're selling to sell your product. All of it is selling at some level. And, and people, and if, and, 
And I always look for the the team because it's okay if if it's just you and you can't sell, probably won't work. If it's you, but you also know that and you've brought on people who can sell, I think about what's the what are the pieces that need to fit together here. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and uh, interviewing one of these founders that yeah, you sure. come across and you're trying to identify all these things that you're telling me. And obviously sales, I could see one being easily to see the way that they communicate. Uh, but I'm thinking about No, integrity. but here's what I do with sales. I'll tell you something. It's not, it's not that. Everyone can do the recording. Uh-huh. I sit there and I say, tell me about what you're doing. And, and the recording starts in their head. Uh-huh. They've played the same story now for 20 people. Yeah. I stop them. I always interrupt them. No, what, what, what I was getting is for working at a sales training company, right? right. Somebody's asking you questions also, right. trying to discover like what are you interested in? Yeah. And they're following the all the selling skill best practices, right. not just what people think sales is, which right. is being charismatic. Right, and, right. Uh, I think you could see those in the moment by the, the skills that they're in, using during the interview. But when I'm saying integrity and then I see courage, things that are more long-term. right. Um, does that mean that you only invest in founders who have already a lot of experience before? No, you can't always do that. You can't always do that. how do you identify that. those? Right. So that's part of what I was getting at. So, yes, I like working with people I already know. Okay. Because there's, there's more data. There's more knowledge. Uh-huh. There's more experience, right? Of course. So, but, 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 you know, lots of people have come out of school and done mm-hmm. really interesting things, Right. So what I'm trying to do is break their record mm. and force them to get to who they really are. Mm, okay. Right? I don't need their record. I want to know. Uh, one of my questions is, tell me about your childhood. Mm. People go, what? Yeah, got to throw them off. Right. I want to throw them off because then I want to find out who they really are. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I, will do, I will also ask them about things I'm thinking about in other industries. How are they thinking about it? Mm-hmm. I'll ask them. You've got a winery called Hand of God. How would you sell it? Mm. I want to know how they ask me the questions about how they get into the answer of how to sell it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways. I mean, people are good at their recording. That's number one. If they're not good at their recording, I know immediately. Like that's the mm-hmm. easy part, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the part you can prepare for. Mm-hmm. I want to find out the part they haven't prepared for. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I tend to be super honest with people much more than I hear from other investors. Because most investors always want the optionality of coming back. And I would rather find out, is are we going to have a relationship where if I tell you I think that's a dumb idea or that doesn't make sense to me or have you thought about this, that they're not going to get defensive and just say, this isn't going to go well, right? Mm-hmm. So it's dating at the mm-hmm. end of the day and it doesn't happen on one interview. And I, I try not to have tradition. I'll go for walking meetings. I'll try and set up situations that are not a traditional question and answer environment that they're used to. Because I think you find out more about people when you do that. Hmm. Then um, now moving, uh, moving uh, away now from the investing world, which this is still investing, but this is, you said that uh, the wine business was most, more of a passion project for you. Yeah. Can you tell tell me a little bit? I I think I know the story, right? You met with a French from college, but what I'm trying to figure out here is, were you doing just the one business purely of the joy? Because it is going to take your time, and I'm sure there is probably yeah, more it's not just a hundred percent. Right? People, 
You're not optimizing I, for money. Yeah. Look, I, I, time is is the scarce resource. Uh-huh. And so, and to the extent that I can combine my passions and my inspirations, like we were talking uh-huh. about, I thought wine did that and does mm. do that. And I also thought wine presented itself as a very interesting, 11 years ago when I started, a very interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Because younger people were drinking wine. Mm-hmm. Social media and communication models and digital marketing were going to, and, and direct to consumer mm. in the wine world was starting to open up. What if? I thought. And, and also, Argentina has this amazing allure for Americans. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of icons mm-hmm. down there that Americans, and when Americans go to Argentina, they just they fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and Argentina to, the, to that point, really hadn't had a premium product. So from a from a product placement fit, product market fit, I thought this is going to be really interesting. I could differentiate myself. I wasn't going to be a Washington or Napa cab. Land was relatively inexpensive. I had this great winemaker. I thought about all the different things and then I thought I've done marketing. I can I can figure out how we can market differently. Mm-hmm. And we had a story. So yeah, certainly passion, but also really believe that we could create a really interesting brand. Hmm. So it again, it's a it was kind of a great fit again for the things I think I'm pretty good at and the things I'm passionate about. Yeah, I think uh, something that I liked about that strategy is that you're always networking and socializing. I see that on in, yep. in your LinkedIn and everything. So p- putting a bottle of wine that you own was just it was a perfect fit for those occasions. It's too. a perfect fit, and you know <laughs> the thing that I've done is in the last 10 years, had over 500 events with my wine. And before that, you were probably already buying a whole bunch of wine anyways. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is not the right way to buy a bunch of wine, by the way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have have containers of wine. (laughs) Yeah. But but it's it's been super interesting. And I have to say that it's... Again, on my on my path of learning and inspiration, it's been a, it's been so satisfying and so fulfilling. Will I do it forever? I don't I don't know. But you know what? It's like sometimes when I go to a house party, let's say, yeah, uh, or social event, and I see uh, like the, the the brownies, yeah. and I see all these things that they might bought from Costco or whatever. That's right. Yeah. I almost don't remember that they were That's there. Right. But That's sometimes right. I go there and then I have someone say, you know, a, a sample of my favorite treats, right? And they tell you that they made it themselves That's or right. that they own it. That's right. I do remember that that was in the event, you know, like the wine or somebody's um, had like a lot of self-improvement books in an event. But in another event, they are the author of the book. So there is that it's connection. Because there's a connection. I mean, yeah. that's exactly right. And everyone wants connection. In a world where there is so much disconnection, that's the thing that we try. We're not a large winery. We make 2,500 cases a year. But I can tell you that I get stopped in the street. Hey, you're that wine guy, hand of God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And it's it's very gratifying. And, yeah. and and when I get, people will write me emails. Oh, my gosh. We, last night we celebrated and we had a bottle of your wine. And it yeah. was spectacular. And yeah. I think uh, some, I'm probably the wine's out yeah. there and people are enjoying it. And nothing could make me happier. Yeah. No, it's just like, the, like we were talking at the beginning is uh, I, I 
met you 10 years ago doing a moving job for you with one of my friends and at the end of the job you gave us each a bottle of wine <laughs> so it was and already when, part of my when life when i told him hey yeah, did i was remember did, i didn't i didn't know if he would remember you by name but i said do you remember that guy who we worked for and he gave us a bottle of wine he's like oh yeah the hand of god wine 10 years later he remembers hand of god See, isn't that, that crazy? That is beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> I just laugh. And I'm like, <laughs> love that. Wow, that's crazy. Um, okay, I, I think we're running out of time. I want to be respectful of your time here with me. Uh, the last part is just like a rapid series of uh, a series of rapid fire questions. Sure. So, like it. one sentence answers, uh, sure. and that way we, I can let you go fast as, as fast as I can here. All right. Uh, what's your morning routine like? So I'm obsessed with steps. Uh, about nine years ago, I had a very serious moment where I ended up in the hospital for 40 mm -hmm. days. I literally, when I got out, I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk across the room. Mm -hmm. My body had atrophied. So I am, I'm 20,000 steps a day. Mm. And I, first thing I do in the morning is I get up and I get about 5,000 steps in. Hmm. Nice. And then one word that best describes how you work. Uh, how best describe how I work. I, I don't have a lot of, um, rigidity in how I work. I, I love working and I'm thinking about it all the time. And so it's, I try and what I do try and do is put a task in front of me and set a time to the task so I can get deep into something um, and then move on to something else. Hmm. And so I, I, I'm lucky or unlucky, depending on how you think about it, because I have at any one point looking at five to 10 deals, I've got the one, I've got a lot of different things that interest me. So I try and break it up into those various interests and work on those. Hmm. Okay. Uh, current computer. Current computer, Surface Book, man. I'm, I love it. They finally got it right. Current mobile device. Uh, I'm going to admit I have an Apple. <laughs> 10. Uh, uh, what um, apps, software tools you can live without? Let's just say that your top, top three. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think about, I sometimes ask the question of what people do to get their information. So I'm going to answer it slightly differently. Okay. Um, when I'm walking every morning, I listen to a podcast, often the daily, mm -hmm. but, but I've listened to yours. I, I, try and, I try and get some kind of snacks. I really love those guys. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a podcast. The notion of podcasting is really important to me now. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say also uh, there's a website I look at every morning called Tech Meme, which mm -hmm. is kind of an aggregation of tech news, and mm -hmm. um, it sort of starts starts my day off. Mm -hmm. um, and and recently, uh, I would say the app I can't live without is is books. I'm now back to reading books. I have an 11 year old daughter, and she asked me, "What book are you reading, Dad?" So that's my app that I'm I'm really into nice. right now. Um, what everyday thing are you? better at than most people? I think, I think I'm really good at noticing, hmm. observation. What's your workspace setup like? It's, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's a disaster, but it always has been. There's way too much going on around me um, and crowded and scattered and disorganized and That's just who I am. What's your uh, favorite way to keep track of your to-dos? Of my... To-dos. To-dos. Uh, Or to-do list. Yeah, 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 sure. So my favorite way is I actually have a to-do list. And I just, I just do it in a, a Google Sheet, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. 
what do you do you listen to anything while you work or yeah i i love jazz so you I, work while listening to jazz yeah i love jazz hmm. what are you currently reading in your books up <laughs> uh it's called the nickel boys hmm. hardcore interesting book about a school in florida that dealt with uh truant kids mm -hmm. painful painful mm. book but yeah what's your sleep routine like Not good enough. <laughs> Honestly, not good enough. Okay. And it's something, it's funny you brought it up because it's really high on my list. I just listened to a podcast on sleep and yeah. I am going to, it's a new focus of mine. Mm. Literally in the last two days, it's got to be better. Okay. In the last three years, what have you become better at saying no to? Yeah, I now say no a lot because my daughter comes first and to the extent Time has even become more compressed. I live between here and San Francisco, and I will apologize. I never used to say no. I would always take meetings. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I'm biased towards uh, if uh, women entrepreneurs want to get together, people of color, mm -hmm. people who maybe don't have the same access. I'm mm -hmm. gonna I'm gonna prioritize that, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But generally, you know, this the person that reaches out and says, I just want to catch up. I haven't seen you for years. Yeah. Unless there's some strong previous connection, I often will just say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Can you just send me kind of something that you're thinking about that I can yeah. react to? Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, what advice would you give yourself to your 30-year-old self? To my 30-year-old self? Um, gosh. You know, I feel so lucky to live the life and I don't have regrets, but I have definitely been humbled as I've gotten older. And I think being humble early, um, but stay hungry, stay foolish. Mm -hmm. Now you had had a journey where you started from, you know, you were eating the, the Domino's pizzas and all that type of stuff. <laughs> Now all the way to uh, having figured out the investing game, and you're living in a condo, and you basically fulfilled most of your most of all to all your desires, if you if you please. How has the definition of success changed over time for you? Oh gosh, I mean, first of all, I I don't have second homes. I don't have a lot of toys. I, I mean, I mm -hmm. still drive the same car. Mm -hmm. I've felt pretty successful for a long time, and I think. I think I'm just lucky because I live in gratitude. Mm -hmm. I literally think every day, how lucky am I? And that's not made up. That's real. I don't know where I got it. Mm -hmm. So my definition of success really is, am I being a good dad? That's my number one focus. And then am I helping others? Am I being in service? I think I think about that more today mm -hmm. than, I, than I certainly did when I was 30. Oh, that's wonderful. John, uh, Thank you so much. Oh, it was uh, such a pleasure. We could talk for hours. I know. And, and I, I really... was prioritizing what to ask you because I was just, I mean, I told you 45 minutes. We're now in the 55th oh. mark. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I'm really sorry I, about that. I hope we didn't bore your audience, but, <laughs> oh. but I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And that was my interview with John Stenberg. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources, including how to connect with John at bit.ly slash BTS EP033. Again, that's bit.ly slash BTS EP033. 
Finally, if you enjoy listening to this interview, the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a review in your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you.